thing. Um, so how, how are you, Colin? How is your, how have your past weeks been? They've been good. They've been good. Oh, good. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm good. Um, I'll definitely be happy when spring is over in Colorado because it's just like storming every day. But <laughs> yeah, you know, trying to keep my spirits up with, uh, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre. I'm sure that can only help. Yeah, of course. I'm accepting my choices to Colorado. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, welcome everyone, those of you who are here. We really appreciate it. And then those of you who are listening um, after I upload this to YouTube and Spotify. Um, so I think that we are on chapter five. Is that right? Marcel's chapter? Colin, is that... Sorry, is that... Uh, chapter five. Yeah, I think so. Or did we... Because I think we talked about Evich last time. Like, chapter four was, I think... Or did we not? Sure. Uh, no, I think we did talk about Evich, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. I, I don't remember where we ended, unfortunately. Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah, I think I think it was chapter five. Um, cool. Yeah, and uh, so let's see. Uh, I am Elizabeth, and uh, I am a professor of literature and a student of philosophy. I'm kind of on my own journey, but I am taking classes now, so I will, I guess, be getting a bachelor's, maybe. Um, I don't know. Um, doesn't have a master's in philosophy right now, so I'm just taking classes. Um, yeah, and Colin, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, my name is Colin, and I studied philosophy at Boston University and at Stony Brook, and uh, yeah. Okay, cool. So we are talking about L'Ange de Raison, which is the age of reason, uh, and uh, it's basically the first part of the trilogy, The Roads to Freedom, or we can talk about the uh, translation of that. It was um, originally planned as a tetralogy, but I don't know what happened to the fourth book. Do you, Colin, like, was it written or, like, half-written, unpublished? So, my understanding is that it was partially, yeah, there's, like, I don't know, maybe 100 pages existing, but that Sartre never finished it and never published it, and I think it was only discovered after he died. Um, and people debate why he didn't finish it. Some say it's because it took him too long to write it. Other people say that it was because um, I think the later books in the series got bad reviews. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs> so, I don't know. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, that makes me think, because I still think that people who are interested in Sartre would want to read it. Like, you know, I would still want to read it even though it's not oh, perfect. Yeah. I think, like, a similar thing happened maybe with Marcel Proust and his In Search of Lost Times, or I forget what the, uh, the name of it is, but like he, uh, at the last half of it, volumes, I think like four, five, and six are not as finished as they could be. But I don't, I don't know if that's because he didn't have time because he passed on or if he just decided not to finish it. I can't remember. Interesting. Yeah, so, sorry. 
I know Sir also at some point decided literature was not a good avenue for expressing philosophy. Um, so that may have been okay. another reason he, he gave up on the book. But I think it's this is all speculative. No one actually knows why he gave up. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, I'll give a, a quick summary of the book for those who um, maybe this is the first episode that you're listening to. So. Um, basically, the book is set in 1938 in the shadows of World War II. The main character is Matthew. He's a French or Matthew. I don't know what the French pronunciation of that name is, but he's a French professor of philosophy living in Paris, I think, who is preoccupied with the act of freedom, maybe maintaining his freedom, figuring out what it is. Marcel is his pregnant lover, and so Matthew questions how having a child and getting married, if that's what he had to do, would affect his freedom. And so um, other characters in the novel include two students, Boris and his sister Evich, the latter of whom Sartre has burnt that Matthew, that's going to be my problem always, has an attempted affair with. Also, um, Matthew's brother Jacques, representative of an established figure in the bourgeois life, as well as Lola, who is a singer and in a club, and she's an aging, the aging lover um, who's having an affair with the student Boris, so aging from his perspective, perhaps. And then there's Daniel, who is Marcel's sometimes lover, who is also gay. Um, each chapter in the book is from a different character's perspective, but there are some characters um, or some perspectives that the reader does not get a chapter on, like, Evich. So, um, all right, so I think that we are starting, um, what is correct or not, on chapter five um, from Marcel's perspective. So, Colin, do you want me to start off or do you want to start on this chapter? I just want to make one more note, though. As the other thing that's occurring in the background oh, yeah. is Spanish, the other thing that's occurring in the background is the Spanish Civil War which plays uh, a role at several points because one of Matthew's school friends is fighting in, has gone to Spain to fight on behalf of the Republicans against the fascists. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And we get such an interesting reflection on that as well when he, uh, in one of the chapters I think we'll talk about. So, yeah, so that's great. Um, yeah, so so chapter five is uh, from the perspective of Marcel. And uh, I thought there were some interesting quotes in the beginning, maybe about gender, um, because she talks about freedom. And she says, on, this is on page 85, a human being who wakened in the morning with a crazy stomach with 15 hours to kill before next bedtime had not much use for freedom. Freedom didn't help a person to live. So I thought it was really interesting because she's probably talking about freedom as defined by her lover maybe since, you know, Matthew is kind of obsessed with freedom. Um, and then from chapter one, uh, Matthew also says something in terms of gender and freedom. He says that he realized that he would never be able to put himself in Marcel's place. The freedom I talk about is the freedom of a sound and healthy man. So as opposed to however he sees Marcel. So my question that I wanted to ask 
you, Colin, just right off the beginning of this chapter, who is freedom for? Is Matthew perceiving or desiring a kind of freedom that's only useful for some? Is it not like a universal kind of goal or desire that he sees or he characterizes freedom as? And then why would Marcel say this? What does she mean that freedom doesn't help a person to live freedom? She doesn't have much use for it in her state. Um, yeah, those are those are great questions about what is freedom for Sarge. Um, can you tell me, point me to the first quote, where the first quote is from? Yes, okay, so the first quote where Marcel is... I'm sorry, the second quote, I'm sorry. Oh, the yeah, second. the second, oh, sorry, the second one is on page 15. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I had forgotten about that first quote, uh, the second quote. Um, that does seem very gendered. Um, yeah, and I and kind of oddly gendered because I don't feel like I I don't understand Marcel. I'll have to say um, I don't understand I don't understand what's how Star understands Marcel. If that's a better way of putting it. Um, because like in the in the first quote. She seems to be saying, like, yeah, at least part of it is, you know, she's pregnant. So she has very real physical limitations on her freedom, um, which Matthew doesn't have, or, you know, non-pregnant people have. Right. Um, yeah. Well, okay, yeah, but you, but what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there is an ambiguous situation that's being created, or there's some there's an element of ambiguity in um, in terms of freedom for Marcel, um, because it seems like she has self contempt almost for her state, even as she wants to baby. Um, but she's not able to, perhaps because of her partner, because of the social situation, she's not able to create sort of an experience of her pregnancy that would allow her to maybe enjoy it and accept it and celebrate it. Because she says on page 86, if I were an animal, I would be left alone. So there's kind of some disgust that she has about her body and her situation, even though she wants to continue it. So I think there's, I think there's some ambiguity in what's going on with her. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, um, so I was thinking a little bit about uh, Sartre's existential psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. and this is a of a tangent, but one thing I, I, I really struggle with, but I'm really trying to interpret this book in terms of his existential psychoanalysis, and at least as I understand it, and like this is definitely a beginner's understanding, is that you know you should be trying like existential psychoanalysis locates, tries to understand the characters or a person's subjects' um, actions in terms 
of their fundamental projects, their fundamental commitment. Um, okay. So it looks, it tries to view, um, you know, in the case of a biography, we try to view the person's life as a whole in terms of their fundamental commitment. And I'm assuming that that's how you would also interpret the characters in, in a book. You would look at them and try to understand, identify, like, what are they committed to? And how is that commitment illustrated in their thoughts, actions, dilemmas, how they face dilemmas and the dilemmas they face and their emotions, etc. Um, because, of course, for a start, like, the fundamental project goes all the way down. Um, it, like, it, it determines the emotions you have when you're facing with a certain, either do you face danger with fear or with um, glee? That would depend on your fundamental project. Um, yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. So, could we say, or might we say, that Marcel's project right now, even if it wasn't in the past, because this is the this is the issue, right? That um, that she always talked about and presumably felt toward marriage and children the same way that Matthew did, but maybe that's changed. And so could we say that her current project is love and family and she is in, I, well, I don't know if she's in bad faith, but she's definitely not communicating that to her partner and maybe not fully admitting it herself. Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, I agree. I mean, you know, Matthew really hates Marcel, I think. <laughs> Do you think that? I Maybe think that's too sad. I hope not. I, I hope not. But that's but that's really interesting. I mean, I think that. I mean, there's definitely some negative feelings. I would say. Yes, okay, I'll grant that. Those are negative feelings. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> I guess you know I I, was, I read the end of the book last night and that was kind of popping into my mind. <laughs> Um, and I'm not sure Daniel likes Marcel either. <laughs> As like, just to, you know, make it even worse. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, Daniel might feel like, uh, might feel that way for different reasons than, than Matthew. I agree, but, I agree. But, but yeah, I mean, if, if Matthew feels that Marcel is now like a barrier to his freedom, then he would her yeah and any anyways all i'm just getting at is marcel's in a really awful position um in this right. book where she's tied to two men neither of whom i think love her um i'm sure neither of them love her because um, they say so but, yeah, and she's yeah. not in she's not in a historical era where she can say, well, I'm just going to have this baby on my own and be like a yep. single mom and enjoy that and be empowered or, or whatever. You know, she can't do that. So that that is really difficult. You know, I was yeah. actually listening to, so you sent me, so thank you, um, that link to that YouTube page about like, yep. all of these great lectures. So I ended up listening to one of them. Um, so I don't know how to pronounce her name, but she's a French philosopher and it's the author of the book that you that you were reading or that you are reading, We Were Not Born oh. Submissive. How do you Oh is it? cool. Yeah, so she 
She has a lecture. Do you pronounce her Manon. name Manon Garcia or is it Manon Garcia? Yeah, Manon. 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 Okay, right. Yeah, the French accent. Okay, so um, yeah, so she was kind of talking about, um, I guess, the situation of uh, of people in general, but specifically women, and saying that she was saying. She was saying that Beauvoir would say that we can't say that an individual is in bad faith when they have they're under such a restrictive sort of societal structure that they can't fully consent to to the predicament they're in and supposedly like have chosen. That's interesting. Yeah. So so I don't know if we. If that you know would be Marcel's uh, predicament, but the other um, the other thing that I thought was interesting in this chapter was a quote on page eighty eight about relationships, um, and so Marcel is kind of reflecting on her own sort of responsibility in terms of her difficulty and you know having the baby or not having the baby. Um, it says that he couldn't know. It's my fault. I never told him anything. But she could not speak. It would not come out. Daniel knew how to interest her in herself. He had such a charming way of questioning her. He uh, he had only to behave like Daniel talking about Matthew, but she wishes because she wishes Matthew would you know ask her what she feels. Um, yeah. If he had helped me a little. So and I can't remember where it is, but there's something that Marcel says. And it may be much later in the book where um, she is kind of critiquing Matthew's way—not to him, but like in her head—his way of dealing with other people. She says that yeah. Matthew makes a statement, and so the other person has to reject it or not. But if Matthew had a softer pro- approach, he would formulate the idea in terms of a question. So. Basically, like the burden is less on the listener to respond. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's kind of like when someone makes a suggestion, and that instead of asking a question, like formulating a question to get responses, um, so so maybe someone would say, uh, you know, let's do let's do the meeting at nine o'clock on Monday. Um, and then just kind of waits for someone to speak up. Someone, so someone has to say, oh, I don't really like that time or I don't really like that day. Instead of the other the alternative would be to as like a leader of like, let's say like a group at work or something. When, what day and time would be, would work for everyone to do meetings? And then, you know, you listen and instead of making a statement. So, and so that's what I think Marcel is getting at. Like Daniel has a softer approach. Daniel like I guess asks her questions about herself or something Matthew doesn't and so my question that I wanted to ask you is what responsibility do we have toward each other um is Daniel actually because interesting that you said you know Daniel doesn't like her either but is Daniel nevertheless a more ethical partner than Matthew what is the role of asking questions in terms of good relationships um, that's a big question. Um, yeah. I, um, it's easier for me to comment. I mean, so I'm not. Let, let me talk about Daniel for just a moment. I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about Daniel right now. Yeah, but I mean, I do it. Yeah, if you want 
Yeah. Boy, yeah. Daniel is, a, is an awful person. I, yeah. <laughs> he might be a psychopath. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, no, he really might. And I mean, it's it's all based on his self-loathing over the fact that he's gay. But um, still, yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's interesting because like... I mean, I, that makes a lot of sense. Like, so, so, so Matthew engages in conversations almost like they're disputations, or they're like yes. it's combat. He says key, you know, if you know, you have to say not key in order to mm-hmm. like, move the conversation forward. <laughs> There's no room for questions. Exactly. In, in Matthew's conversing, um, and it would be interesting to think about how that relates to the fact that. Um, he, I think, correctly reflects on himself at the end and says he's nothing but pure, he's done nothing but negate in um, the book. Um, yeah. Nothing but deny, deny, deny. Because that, that's, I think that's, a, I think that's correct. Um, questions seem really important. They help us form bonds with other people. We get to know what other people think in a way that doesn't is non-combative. Yeah. I don't know. That's what I would say. Yeah, it creates it creates a, an opportunity for someone to share, and that seems like Matthew's like maybe that would be his solution, you know, because he has it causes him a lot of stress, I think, to think about what's in other people's heads, and uh, and so maybe some of that is he doesn't want to really know what's like in Evich's head or in Marcel's head, but um, yeah. you know, it seems like. It's also, he's also suffering from the lack of knowledge. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's, Matthew and Daniel, I think, who I think become our two main characters. That's at least how I read the book. Does that fit with your reading? Um, Yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely the most complex and compelling characters. Yeah. And we have the most, and I think we just have their most. They have they have the largest POVs chapters. Um, yeah, they, they're both very isolated individuals. Um, I so yeah. I think that's somewhat debatable. The commitment to Marcel with Daniel, I think, is um, or Daniel's commitment to Marcel is. Um, I'm not quite sure how to read that. Understand that. Um, yeah, I feel like it's really Yeah, no, that's that's great. Actually, that reminds me of the. Um, I don't know if you had uh, uh, any chance, or you, or even intended to read uh, the the Iris Murdoch book on yes. Sartre, but she. Yes. Okay, so on page one twenty nine, <laughs> she talks about actually isolation. Um, she oh, says wow. that he isolates the self. So that it treats others not as objects of knowledge, but as objects to be feared, manipulated, and imagined about. So when you isolate the self, you are so asking questions treats someone else, the other, as an object of knowledge. They have knowledge, and you are sort of asking them a question, asking them a question to open up that that gate of knowledge. But when you isolate the self, as you were saying. I don't know, Murdoch, I just like the way she articulates things sometimes, like, because that's true, because 
uh, Matthew fears others. Matthew manipulates others, and yeah. he imagines about them. He imagines conversations in his head. Do you think Matthew manipulates others? I mean, Daniel manipulates others. Does Matthew? So Daniel manipulates others in order to poke at them and make them feel uncomfortable, and he delights in that. So that's why yeah. I think I was calling him a sociopath because, like, yeah. that's, like that's that's not nice. <laughs> so, no. But, but Matthew. I mean, he's a, he's a sadist. I think Star would say he's a sadist. And, yes. and a sadist. Yeah, a sadist. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Matthew isn't. I don't think Matthew is ill-intented, but Matthew is, whether he is a coward or it's total selfish, like, self-protection, he manipulates others in a way that I think actually is not, like, super uncommon. Like, I remember something in the book where he said, when he's talking to Odette, um, his brother's wife, Mm. um, he says, I'm going to... He intentionally like tries to put some humor to his voice to be like playful or when he's with Evich, he says, I'm going to talk so much that she'll forget that she's angry. You know, like, so he has these little intentional kind of manipulations of his own behavior just to kind of protect himself or make someone else feel a certain way. And so even though it might be like not necessarily harmful, it's still a manipulation. That's a good point, and I feel like that gets back to the fact that it feels like, I mean, Murdoch talks about this a lot, that, like, in, so I didn't read the, I didn't actually read the whole book, I, did you read the whole Murdoch, all of Murdoch? I did not. Um, I did, I just, yeah. That was, that's good, I should do that. Um, she, she talks about how Matthew's reflection seems to isolate him from others, other people, yeah. and I think that's true. Um, and I think that's a perfect example what you're talking about is a perfect example of that she, he is always reflecting on every single situation with people um, always trying to analyze what they're doing and what he's doing and what emotion they have and what he's trying to accomplish and says things in order to make it happen in order to make what he's, he wants to happen happen um Right. And, you know, I just wonder if you are spending so much time thinking, can you be, can you act? Right. Yeah. And, and that's his, that's his thing. He wants to act. He's just waiting for the perfect one, the perfect act. Yeah. And a few times he does act. I mean, so like, well, maybe we should just, maybe we should go to the next chapter instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... Yeah, but if you if you want to go into the next chapter, that's fine. Or like, or just finish your thought. Like, I think that's that's fine too. It does feel like there's a few times in which he does act. Um, okay. Possibly when he stabs himself with a knife. Ah, yes. There you go. His impulsivity that he loves Ivich so much for, as you articulated. And then maybe also when he tells Marcel that he doesn't love her, when he plans on telling, I mean, he, I think, I'm not sure it only happens once, but he does do this thing where he says, where he thinks, I'm going to tell her I love her, and then he says he doesn't love her. Right, um, yeah. Right in, in the last chapter, or second last chapter, or whatever, and um, that's pretty impulsive. 
Like that's that's definitely not pre-planned. Right. And so, and you know, when he does stab himself, he feels elated. Like he, like that's the time he feels like happy about himself and overjoyed because he did this thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That's pretty curious. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting because he feels elated in the first, but when he says, but the thing with telling um, Marcel he doesn't love her, that's like encapsulates everything. He doesn't love her. He just doesn't. Like, it's so obvious how much he doesn't love her. Um, and so it's like his uh, his irreflective action gets away from his constant overthinking, his constant thinking um, and planning and manipulating. Um, and it actually right. expresses the truth. Because, you know, without... Like, because he doesn't think in that moment, he expresses the truth of the situation. Something on those lines. Right. Yeah, so so that... I don't know, then, does that mean that we are truly free when we are outside of ourselves, when we're not ruminating or trying to be super rational, but when we are kind of irrational and
it says on 91 um and so they're in the museum they're looking at a portrait and uh he says the week before when he had seen the portrait for the first time matthew had thought it was good at present he felt oversaturated by reality and truth permeated by the spirit of the third republic so i thought that kind of foreshadowed the war that's coming in a sense or like commented on it and so I wanted to ask if you thought this had any implications here about the relationship between aesthetics and truth or beauty and truth. Are they in opposition? Or is it pleasure that he is indicating as contradictory that he can't really take in an experience with joy because there's too much, you know, real things, too many real things going on. So is there, yeah. no, is there not a role for beauty when that happens? I'm not quite sure. I, I, I think it's interesting because in, in the previous paragraph, he says pictures, he thought with annoyance, have no positive force. They're no more than suggestions. Indeed, their existence depends on me. I am free as I confront them. Too free. He felt burdened by additional responsibility and somehow in fault. So, um, it's, it's his, they, the pictures are just suggestions. It's his responsibility to understand them, to, in some sense. He gives he gives them their real meaning, their meaning, um, which seems to account for the fact that he can have two very different experiences of the paintings. Does that yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So it just it completely depends on on his subjectivity. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting uh, quote as well that you that you read. He was too free. He felt burdened by an additional responsibility and somehow in fault. He does, he does feel quite guilty and kind of regretful about his own positionality. And, and I wondered if, I don't know, maybe I'm not being generous enough toward this character, but it seems somewhat know unheroic or childish to feel burdened by a responsibility when you could look at it as an opportunity um, to be free and to enact freedom because it's it's open for you I mean what does it mean to be too free yeah I agree what do you think is the relationship between the good the reality and the truth in this in this section I mean, I would I'm, I'm not sure like more on aesthetics. <laughs> like, yes, okay. With other yes. people. <laughs> but um, I mean, I would. I think that you know, along with what Matthew is saying, I think he is expressing a truth that beauty and aesthetics takes on a different role. I don't think it it really it has no. Um, role when there are when there's tragedy or you know kind of important or weighty things happening in your life but I think that it does have a different role I just don't know if Matthew kind of explores that or at least I didn't write down any quotes that that show him doing that um but I think beauty is is needed um in 
like say wartime or the pandemic or something like that and actual thing and I think that standards still apply you know because just well thinking about the pandemic um you know and the paths that we could take with social media like drowning ourselves in social media or uh being creative and being artistic and a lot of people started creating content or having prior you know pursuing projects and that was kind of like life-giving and salvific so i think that beauty can have a very truthful and liberating aspect for us in difficult times you know it seems like looking at this passage again which i also underlined it seems like matthew is so it it seems like in for whatever reason he's not seeing the painting he's seeing yeah. its components he's seeing the techniques that are be he saw everything that the classic like to clarify the walls the canvases on their frames this uh, the scumbled colors on the canvas but not the pictures the pictures have become extinct and it appeared monstrous in the depths of the soul domain of relevance the people could have found to paint to depict non-existent objects upon canvases. So the the pictures have, the painting has lost its meaning for him. Um that that's okay. how I that's how I would read that. The painting has lost its meaning. It's just become just a conflation, just a structure of colors on a canvas and he he sees nothing beyond that. Okay, so do you think that that's because Matthew is as we were talking uh so isolated he doesn't allow the picture or the art or the museum to become subject and to create um a reciprocal relationship an exchange of energies. So there's so it's not I'm not sure yeah. not something there that he couldn't find truth in you know there's not some it isn't that there's it's impossible for beauty to create a, to have a role but he's only open to meaning and truth or knowledge as far as he sets the boundaries there's no yeah. openness for for again like the murdock quote for an object being an object of knowledge it's only so when you're so isolated you tend to use um objects or others and uh, if you can't if they can't meet your needs then they're no longer useful or wanted or needed and so he's doing that maybe with the painting and the museum i guess i keep thinking that you know first start the world loses its meaningless its its meaningfulness in anxiety um yeah I, i'm not sure i'm not sure yeah i mean i guess the whole thing about existential is kind of like you're creating a meaning right there's no inherent yeah. meaning yeah yeah but i don't know then does that lead to isolation i don't know i don't necessarily know if matthew is uh, I don't think he's never someone to really take seriously and admire and contemplate, but I did read something in the letters that I was reading. Actually, it was just like in the introduction to the to his letters during the war, 
and I think apparently he says at some point that Matthew is irresponsible with his freedom. Like That's he, he's a character that, yeah, who, who, yeah, I don't know. That's yeah, that's that's what it said. Irresponsible with his freedom. So, I don't know if that necessarily applies to this part right here, but just something I guess to keep in mind if that's what Sarcha really like intended. That's interesting because I mean, um, Murdoch. I feel like she says several times that she sees Matthew as being a portrait of Sart, and I mean, maybe starts being critical of himself, but maybe she's wrong in identifying the two. Right? Yeah, I don't. This is what that's something that the the person who was ever whoever was writing a forward like they articulated it as if they were pretty confident. But I would love for him to. I haven't read all of the letters, so I don't know. Um, but I would love to find like Sartre actually saying that. So I'll let you know if I find it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Please. <laughs> yeah. Um. So like the other thing to mention, I guess, in this chapter. Um. I mean, so Sartre's disdain of the bourgeois is always on display, I think. I guess I'll throw that out there, which is pretty funny. Um, Yeah. But um, I guess the other important thing is if it's just after they leave... um, I mean, I don't know. There's a little bit more about Ivich's character in here, which is kind of interesting. Um, Yeah. Oh, definitely. On 95. Um, Ivich had a way of talking about the illustrious dead that scandalized him slightly. She did not establish any relation between the great paintings and their pictures. Pictures were things, beautiful objects to be appreciated and possessed. They seemed to her to have always existed. Painters were men like other men. She felt no gratitude to them for their works and did not respect them. Is Ivich a narcissist? <laughs> I, see, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it would go two ways with this. You could try to see from Matthew's perspective and like psychoanalyze Ivich. Like, what is she doing? She is taking away um, any sort of divinity or sacredness from these artists who I guess you know could be admired could be put on a pedestal um but who is to who is to judge that and say that that's the way that you should approach you know maybe she has a more familiar approach to art she has a less bourgeois approach to art because she's not not imbuing it with something that has sort of metaphysical or economical value um She's going to relate to it as she would relate to a friend on a more familiar level. So, I don't know. I'm inclined to take Ivich's side. I definitely don't think she is a narcissist. I don't think she, or we could know that. She just, she just seems carefree. And furthermore, Matthew loves how real Ivich makes the world because she has, she has this energy. But at the same time, he critiques her, which I find his critiques rather petty. Uh, how so? Um, so, uh, let me see if... Or we don't have to go there yet. We can, we can continue. Yeah. No, 
mean, I think it's, I think it's great. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I have a quote, but it seems to me that Sartre, when he is critiquing the Zitch, it's totally, or it's, he's revealing that he only likes her the way he likes her, and he's not open to, because, you know, if we, if we're in a relationship with someone, we can't design them according to our preferences, right? We have to love all of them or like or be interested in all parts of them and learn how to like different aspects of them. But he seems to like what he likes and dislikes what he dislikes and he doesn't give any room to nuance, to trying to see the other side. He just... He's just like, oh, this is distasteful. It just seems to me like someone who is close-minded and it wouldn't easily get along with others because they're difficult to please. You know, but Evich hangs out, and he still hangs out with her. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's just being honest with what he doesn't like about her. But I think, I think just any time he critiques her, it it doesn't feel like it's in a spirit of generosity. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, he and he also, you know, I don't know. He is. Uh, he has a lot of desire with Evich, but it seems like he he doesn't allow himself to be free around her because he's so preoccupied with controlling the situation. And I just I just think he's stifling his own freedom when he does that. That's a I think that's a really good point. I think that Matthew definitely feels at his most um, like Evich throws Matthew off more than anyone else, I would say. Yeah. Um, he is always trying to control her because he, he really can't. Like, he, not like can he not, like, she, she, he just, he, like, um, I don't remember where it says that, you know, basically, you know, she only went to these, she only went out with him because, or she only went to the museum because he wanted to go to the museum. She only did things because he wanted to do things. Like, all of her interest was fake, she says. Um, right. Well, she doesn't like to feel... Yeah, and he gets really upset. He was... He, yeah. he says, well, I thought that you... He, he's kind of hurt. He's like, I thought that yeah. you loved doing this. And she says, um, I hate being made to feel obligations toward things I like. <laughs> Yes. I think it's such a great quote. Yes. It's like, it's like you like it, but you don't want to feel obligated. And then if you feel obligated, I just, I don't know, I love that. <laughs> yeah. But just to get yeah. back to your your previous point, like on 94, the, he's, the, the, you know, it says, so she didn't mean to leave him. That did not prove he was forgiven. Ivich had a horror of leaving places and people, even if she hated him, being afraid of what might come next. She acquiesced to sulky indolence, the most disagreeable situations, and ended by finding a sort of solace in them. Matthew was glad all the same. As long as she stayed with him, he could not, he could stop her thinking. 
If he talked incessantly, if he asserted himself, he could for a little while, de- while delay the angry and contemptuous thoughts that would soon possess her mind. He must talk and talk at once about no matter what. Yeah, it seems like he's trying to produce their encounter. I mean, but even, yeah. he doesn't even attend to his own bodily needs. He, it says on 95, right. Matthew wanted to wipe his forehead, but he didn't dare do so. I'm like, wipe your forehead, take off your coat and your head. <laughs> like, he's just, he's trying to, it's like he's so desperate to, like, hold on to this relationship. So there must be something that he deeply, like, needs from it or yeah. values in it. But at the same time, it's just not perfect for him. Uh, and when you put it like that, I mean, it sounds like he's afraid of Ivich, actually. Um, he's afraid of losing her. He's afraid of what she'll say. He's afraid of her derisive remarks. Um, maybe he's afraid of her spontaneity, too. Yeah, I mean, because it's, you know... It's not like he has to think too much. He has to have the perfect reason or the perfect set of reasons in order to commit. You know, that's why in a later chapter when, I forget what his name is, Brunet wants him to join the communistic party. He's like, well, I just don't feel passionate enough yet. I'm going to wait for, you know, to be really inspired. And if it doesn't need that, I guess that, you know, that makes me see your comment last time about her being impulsive. Like, that makes me agree with you because... It's like, Evich does it. If that's what impulsivity is, it's not thinking before you act, then yeah, for sure, Evich does that, and Matthew can't. Yeah, he can. Yeah. Well, he does, it, he does like twice, maybe, but that's not his yeah. normal mood. Yeah. Yeah, she's just impulsivity. She's like pure, I guess. I mean, her and Boris are both some of puzzling figures. I, I'm just, um, even though we get more force than Ivich. Ivich is definitely the most opaque character in the program, I think. Because we Yeah, I mean, she she hangs out with, you know, her professor, even if she doesn't, she kind of wants to, and she kind of doesn't want to, but she, I think she says what she thinks, or at least, I guess we don't know. I mean, we can only, we could only say if someone says what they think or if they don't think we get their interiority and yeah, we just don't get Ivich's interiority. So, so I don't know if she's. It seems like she's saying what she thinks, but actually, I don't know <laughs> because I, I can't. I don't know what her interiority is. Yeah, we only get Matthew's analysis of her. Yeah. And her, you know, and her words. We don't get anything from her perspective. Yeah. Um, but she has Matthew nailed to the ground. <laughs> I would say, <laughs> like in terms of. Um, you know, he, he comes across as rather pathetic, honestly, in this chapter, I think. Um, at, at the bottom of 99, he, she says, you're settled, and... Wait, is this very much um, Yeah. Where, did, where does he say he could become a writer at any time? I don't remember. Um, where he could go to Spain or whatever. Um, oh. Um. I don't know. But like, it's the bottom 99. He, she says, you're settled and you won't change for all the money in the world. Indeed, says Matthew. And how do you know? It's an impression. The impression is that your life and your ideas about everything are all set. You reach out to things 
when you think they're you're there within your scope, but you don't do tr- but you don't trouble to go and get them. Um, right. I thought that then, you were prepared to risk anything. With you, there's a sense of security. Yeah. <laughs> and Matthew, of course, doesn't like that. No, I'm like I'm. Oh no, he. Um, of course, if you tell me that you aren't like that, no, he said in a low voice, I'm like that, just as you saw me. So he's he's embarrassed. Um, yeah, I mean, he definitely is open to other people's, to, to, what is the word, interiorize the other person's perspective. Like, he lets that get him down. He, he doesn't know, it's like, it's almost like Matthew doesn't know who he is. Because, you know, he's like, do I want freedom? Is, you know, what is freedom? Yeah, what do I want? Have I made choices? Like, what are the decisions I want to make? You know, he questions a lot. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's it's true. Like, so you reach out to things when you think they're within your scope. I mean, because Matthew does, like, re- like, grab her and kiss her, but he doesn't ask her how she feels feels about it or pursues he doesn't like pursue a relationship with her in terms of like asking her if she wants to be in a relationship with him he that's true you know so it's it's kind of contradictory like he, he kissed her and then he's just spending the rest of the time worrying about i don't know it just it seems i don't know it just seems suspect like when you know there's a lack of communication Yeah, I mean, I... And then his thing is, on 101, he said, and when he says, well, you should have told me, that's, it always gets me when Matthew says, well, you know, or about Marcel, you know, she would speak up if she had yes. something to say. But yes. he doesn't do that either. So. Yes. Yeah, all his reflection doesn't lead, like, yeah, he blames others for his own obstinacy. For his own lack of interest in them. Maybe it's a better way of putting it. Um, and I'm back on page 100, you know, um, you know, Evich says, with you there's a sense of certain security, never any fear of the unexpected. True, said Matthew dryly, dryly, if you mean I don't act on impulse, which, you know, denigrates what you just said, right, or diminishes. You know, I could, like anybody else, but it seems sort of lousy to me. So he, he's full of excuses. Yeah, he definitely um, tries to, to justify. But I guess every character is really concerned with justifying what they do or what they don't do. Yeah. What do you um, think? Well, I mean, like, for instance, Marcel, I mean, Matthew is not, if anything, he's not a scary person. So Marcel definitely could have like been courageous enough in that relationship um, to say what she thinks, right? But she she kind of rationalizes it and justifies it, which is probably half true, but half not true, that Matthew could have made it easier for her to speak up, right? I mean, that's true. He could have been more empathic or more, um, you know, inviting in a sense, but, you know, he's not, he's not like going to slap her around if she if she says what she thinks right like that's not who Matthew is Matthew is an intellectual and he's like a decent person so yeah. 
kind of a it's kind of a rationalization of her own behavior. And then Daniel, I think I don't know if I have like a specific quote to point to right now, but I seem to remember him like kind of just because he goes back and forth with what he wants to do, like killing the cats, and he goes back and forth between self content, like self content, and like rationalizing why he he didn't or why he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, Daniel's right. I, I agree with you, Sam. And I guess Jacques does it too, right? When he says yeah. that he also rationalizes his own behaviors in life. And I mean, I think there's, like, there's two ways of looking at it or there's two sides to the coin. Like, what I, what I want as a leader, Matthew, to do is just, and I think a lot of characters want him to do, um, when they're being good natured towards Matthew, which I don't think they always are, but when they, they, well, his his best friend, we'll, we'll get there, I guess, but his friend, Brunet, who wants him to join the Communist Party, uh, you know, when it finally comes to the moment where, like, Matthew, you know, it's clear that Matthew's not going to join, um, Brunet says, well, that's okay, just be, be truthful or be authentic about what you want, and what you don't want like that's okay you don't have to ju- he says you don't have to justify your decisions to anyone just infuse a decision with meaning and i can see like sartre saying that right like that's not yes. essentialism it's it's like yes. make a decision and then make your decision